0: friends, welcome to The Faithful Podcast, stories of people who walked by faith and gained a fuller understanding of the faithfulness of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Baker. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on iTunes at Faithful Podcast by Stephanie Baker or at my website, faithfulpodcast.podbean.com. If you like the show, please leave me a review. Reviews help people find the podcast so that it can be an encouragement to them. My guest this week is my dear friend, Andrea Pale. Andrea is a powerful communicator, and I'm so thankful for her candor and her vulnerability. We got a little carried away with the length, and because I didn't want you to miss a single thing, I decided to split it into two episodes. Andrea shares about her family dealing with the painful grip of addiction, but also how God brought healing and restoration. Praise God. Also, just a little side note, We are both working moms and we were recording this at home, so please bear with the sounds of life around us. You know, kids, dogs, etc. I know that this episode will be a huge blessing to you guys. So without further delay, this is part one of two of my interview with Andrea Pale. Guys, I am so glad that you're able to hear this conversation I have today. Andrea Pale, she is a very dear friend that I have known for, I don't know, fifteen years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, we we met through um, a organization and at Texas A and M University. Whoop! <laughs> and and uh, we both have a heart for. Um, Kids that kind of get overlooked sometimes and um, may have some struggles at home. And uh, she's an awesome person. And she's going to be sharing today um, about some stuff that she's been through with her family. So I'm really glad you're here. Andrea, thanks so much for coming.
1: Oh, it's a privilege. So glad to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, So, well... (laughs) we're recording at home if you can't tell there's a little bit of extra noise in there um so can you just tell me a little bit about yourself uh for anybody that's listening that may not know you already and what little bit of what what you're up to these days
1: definitely a few things have changed since we first met Mm -hmm. um since then i'm a mom to 12 year old twins we have boy girl twins that are 12 i could just get into fetal position and cry about that Um, so yeah, when we first met, we were newlyweds. I believe mm-hmm. we were in our first year of marriage, quite possibly. I, yeah, I think we, it was pretty early on. Yeah, I think it was around t- 2003 when we met, and mm-hmm. so uh, we had kids in 2007. And Ryan wow. and I have been married now for. 17, going on 17 and a half years before long, so I know, so it has been a while since we became friends, but he has since then, since we met in that organization, he is now the pastor of community care, so over community outreach as well as sort of congregational care where we are at our um, church and college station. We're still here uh-huh. living the good life in Land. And <laughs> I was um, a teacher for Head Start with uh, the school district. And so for those that are not familiar with Head Start, it is a federal program that seeks to empower um, vulnerable children and families and the community and it's nationally. Um, uh, it's a national program. So I was a teacher for the school district and then an administrator in the years since you and I have been connected and now I am a consultant and I travel nationally to work with programs and teachers throughout the country that are doing the good work uh, for the good people in their that's communities true. that are disenfranchised, as, as you mentioned. So yeah, that's what I've been up to these days, doing consulting work. Uh, here and there, and um, that's kind of, that's life these days. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I think it's great that you have found such a, or, an awesome organization to work with and got to serve with them for so many years in so many different roles. I think that must give you a whole lot of um, ability to speak to different situations and to be very sympathetic to the struggles of working in an environment where there's there's a lot that you deal with. There's a lot of different um you know, things where people are probably working with folks outside of their cultural groups or outside Mm -hmm. of the the norm of the people they might interact with, but they care deeply for them. So that's cool.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I always say, I feel like God releases dreams into my life that I didn't know I had. I certainly (laughs) never dreamed that I would have the opportunity, but it is this beautiful intersection of just history, um, kind of, just kind of converging on, on passion and mission and vision and, and experiences that we've had, both through youth impact and teaching, and now um, getting to really apply those passions out in kind of the world on a, on a national context or scale. It's it's pretty um, humbling. So it's it's amazing to see the work that people are doing out there that is often unseen and and um, and really it's it's a thankless job. And so I love having the opportunity to get to say thank you to people mm-hmm. that are doing the work every day so that's so cool um so can you tell us how you came to know jesus sure i sure will well my earliest memory of jesus was within the catholic church a little girl my mom's family they were devout catholics and and so i did attend sunday school up until um first communion around that age was probably those were my last memories of attending church but i have a vivid picture of myself on a pew Bored out of my mind answering <laughs> that, and and yet, very Jesus was so present to me even in that experience of being on a pew. I remember looking at the scenes of of Christ on the walls. Uh, there were some stained glass images on the walls, and and then up uh, in front, of course, main stage was Jesus hanging at crucified, and I remember just weeping and I just sat on the pew and was just crying and my heart ultimately was just stirred in affection and and ultimately grief for the image of Christ crucified. And it wasn't for many years uh later that I actually heard uh the story of Christ under the stars at a camp out when I was in junior high. My dad sent us to a camp and the Hillside of of Texas, I'm trying to think of where we were exactly, but mm-hmm. uh, it was Wimberley, Texas, I believe. And so I, in Hell Country, and I was, it was the last night of camp, and it was under the stars. And I remember hearing for the very first time uh, that this Creator God that put the stars in place and that knows them by name, that He knows me and that He sees me and that He loves me. And mm. just some of what will come out even in this conversation is that um, I struggled with a sense of belonging from the time that I was a little girl. Uh, never really felt a sense of belonging or being seen or being chosen and uh, just in my heart in that moment, um, there was this just awareness, this deep awareness that that you see me and that mm-hmm. you do choose me and that you um, you created it all and yet somehow you see me and you love me and you and you, choose me and so uh, there was no official sinner's prayer there was no actual confession at the time other than um just through tears just a yes in my in my heart uh for the jesus that that died that died and rose and uh resurrected yeah sees me and knows me and loves me and um made informed me so I just had this real awareness of that and then it wasn't until a few years later in high school that Mm -hmm. through my involvement in Young Life I did actually acknowledge on a retreat one weekend um just acknowledge that I because of things that I think or say or do or believe um and ways that I have uh on my own way ultimately that I was Mm -hmm. opposed to God and um ultimately that he um died for me and and for those Tendencies that are within myself that are an enemy of God. And so I, at that time, uh, confessed, Jesus, you are Lord, and I trust you. And so it will be interesting, it will be interesting mm-hmm. to just know at what at what point along my path, um, just at what point along my path I was transferred, so to speak, from death to life, because whether it was a little girl in the pew whose heart grieved for, for God uh, and for uh, his mm-hmm. son, being crucified, or my heart saying, yes, that a creator God bends low and he sees me and he loves me and he chooses me. Or yes, I do actually confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord. It will be interesting to see how yeah. to know exactly at what point I came to life. But in mm-hmm. any case, I came to life because he brought me to life.
0: Mm. We're, we're so thankful for that, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's so interesting. That's really cool. That's, um, that's powerful that you know, even though you felt like not much was maybe sinking in at at such a young, early age that, um, in fact, you, (laughs) there was a lot going in. There was a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff that was being processed that you didn't even realize was being processed yet. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really neat. That's cool to see the seeds that are planted at such a young age.
1: And I definitely think, and then the choosing, I think, I think what you're so right. The seeds that were going in, I, the language that you even used there, uh, so often even along the way, God was pursuing my heart in the form of, in the form of friendship. And so throughout that time, whether the little girl <laughs> who didn't mm-hmm. feel a sense of belonging, I I always um, chose to um, really, I mean, in my search for belonging to to seek out people around me. And so I call myself, honestly, I recently wrote a piece on this called The Stray Dog and I called oh. myself The Stray Dog because I just would search for belonging everywhere. So I would just show up on people's doorsteps and ultimately God um, oh. put me into the family of God through the people around me and the relationships around me, whether it was neighbors or friends or people that I dated. Uh, that knew Jesus um, throughout my life, it just is, it's pretty powerful to look back and see that God was constantly pursuing my heart and choosing me through even the people that he put in my path. And um, so, yeah. I think that's
0: super encouraging too, in light of your, you and Ryan and the personalities that you have, because I felt like around you guys, I felt a very strong sense of belonging and I think mm-hmm. that you tried to create a very strong community, and I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know Ryan's past and whatever, but um, I, hearing what you say, that makes so much sense. Why you would seek out people in such a vulnerable time, in those early mm-hmm. college years, and, um, and beyond, that mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to figure out who we are, and who am I, and you're speaking that message of you are loved, you are valuable, you are precious mm-hmm. in God's sight and in mine. And mm-hmm. so I think that's cool. Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah. Um, so you, I, would, I would really love it if you would share with us um, about your brother's uh, journey with addiction.
1: Sure, for sure. Um, well, I do have his permission. As we kind of began, we did. Uh, I did seek his permission to mm-hmm. be able to share, and so which he's thrilled about. And he's always so grateful for the opportunity to educate mm-hmm. people on addiction. And there's been so much healing and restoration in our story than in the last year and a half um, that we're just so proud to tell it. And mm-hmm. so uh, our family uh, was broken from the beginning for as long as I can remember. Uh, there was um, just pain and suffering and estrangement within our family. Mm-hmm. My parents divorced when I was four and Chris was two. And with that separation, um, obviously there's so many layers uh, and complexities to the pain that was uh, present within our home and how people managed that pain mm-hmm. in within our family. And so um, because we all put our pain somewhere, my brother's pain went towards addiction beginning at age 12. Mm-hmm. And so he started using... Uh, as young as 12. And so uh, by the time he was in high school, um, one of my best friends, and I actually found drugs in his his bedroom mm-hmm. as well as loaded weapons in his room. And so then um, by the time I was in college, my sophomore year in college, I got the first call. Um, I think I was about 19 Maybe I just turned 20. I think I just turned 20. Mm. And I got the first call from him that he was incarcerated. He was in prison. So addiction, obviously, um, yeah, it's ravaging. Mm. It ravages one's life. And um, it's starting so early and continuing on for 26 years of his life. Uh, He was in and out of prison throughout that time. And I would go visit him in college. Uh, He was at Huntsville for a few years. Mm -hmm. And so I would visit him there. And um, but but ultimately, the the addiction wasn't necessarily named. I think that you know, oftentimes with with addiction, it goes unnamed within a family context um, because of denial. Mm-hmm. And so that was the case within our family for a lot of years. It was unnamed, and um, and so um, it was oftentimes everybody else's fault um you know so it was the teacher's fault the judge's fault the arresting officer's fault um the absent father's fault the sister's fault whomever's fault it was um Mm -hmm. and so with that sometimes the way that we manage our pain is obviously projecting it and blaming it and avoiding and denying it and so that went on for a long time and Mm so without his addiction obviously did not get treated and didn't um Uh, really get addressed or faced head on until uh, many, many years. And so um, yeah, so with that, there was a time um, of him being in and out of prison, obviously lots of anger throughout those years, estrangement and separation between the two of us. um, Boundaries ultimately uh, were formed between the two of us, which led to a break in relationship for about almost a decade. And so Um, yeah, that gets into some of the other questions I'm guessing that we'll talk about, but Mm -hmm. uh, 26 years of addiction before really um, there was this process of of restoration that took place in the last two years. And so he has, um, yeah, he is in recovery currently. He has (laughs) over two months of sobriety. Mm -hmm. And um, prior to that, he had uh, 15 months um, before a recent relapse, but he is the recovery road and our family is on the recovery road as well and we are well and uh well well on our way to healing as a family Mm,
0: that's so awesome Mm
1: -hmm. can you
0: explain a little bit about what you mean when you say the addiction went unnamed
1: yeah definitely um i think uh so often addiction shows itself within the family you know it affects the family, and I appreciate you even kind of addressing that part of addiction because it, it is a family disease, mm-hmm. and each member of the family interprets addiction and responds to addiction so differently. Mm. And um, so I think it goes unnamed many times because it's just kids being kids, or mm. it's just okay. experimental, or... It's just, um, you know, everybody, everybody drinks a little bit. Everybody, everybody smokes weed at some point. Everybody okay. well, you know, they just have they just have a, you know, he has he has a back his back pains. So he has a prescription for some painkillers. Like it's just, mm. you know, there's a lot of minimizing that I think can happen. And um, and so I think I think with that, or just overall just overwhelm of not knowing what to do if it is named, what is the next step if we actually call it what it is, that this is addiction, that this is a disease, that this is what it is. Um, So I think sometimes it's easy for us to just rationalize the behaviors or um, kind of avoid altogether just naming it because it's so overwhelming to know how to treat it and what to do about it. Yeah. I mean, Mm
0: -hmm. I, I can see how as a as a parent i could probably see myself doing that or as a spouse or even as a sibling i could see i could see how you would it'd be easier in some ways to to do that initially but i get i mean it doesn't it would make sense that no healing would take place until you actually call it what it is i mean that's the 12 step program right you have right. to you know admit that you're powerless against whatever addiction it might be
1: but. Definitely, mm. and I think having compassion—I um, can speak to this because there has been so much healing. Um, because everybody interprets within the family, <laughs> uh, they, uh, they interpret the disease differently and the behaviors differently, and respond to the, the behaviors differently. There, so much of uh, so much of the pain is shared, kind of uh, cross laterally, even within the family. Yeah. So, um, I think that you know, I. I don't think, th- yeah, we I'm gonna speak to this because it is a family disease mm-hmm. and we are healing as a family and only because we've had so much frustration am I able to speak into this. but so much of, of what needed to be named and the addiction was uh, was it was necessary not just for my brother's recovery, but for my own because uh, with with kind of it being a, a family disease, my mom and I responded very differently to it. and because right. I um, recognized the addiction, many years earlier. And for the sake of my own family, drew boundaries uh, with Chris when he was an active addiction. It it definitely came out sideways within our family. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until, honestly, in the last few years, um, going to counseling, um, my brother being in recovery, um, and my mom participating in that process, all of us participating in that process. It was wasn't really until then that we we were even able to kind of be on the path of healing because um it's it you all have to ultimately get to a place where you where you are able to name it together and acknowledge the way that it has impacted you both as individuals and as a system
0: right if that makes sense no i mean you you kind of already started addressing this but like how did this i mean you drew boundaries but like what did that practically look like with you and your family
1: sure, for sure um well I, it wasn't honestly uh, it was it was when i had children mm-hmm. um my kids were little actually the first time that i, I started to kind of really understand that i would that, that there would need to be a reorientation of kind of the way things were and and within the system i was pregnant with twins and my brother showed up at Christmas at my house, and he was high mm. and um, went out immediately for more alcohol. And it was what you expect to be when somebody is an active addiction. It was chaotic. I was afraid. I spent a lot of years afraid, mm. and I was fearful. And the stress um, was my—I I mean, it was every part of my being from the inside out as, as a—, a pregnant mom, yeah. I was affected by the stress of it. And I, um, thought I can't do this again. I can't, I can't allow for this again when the babies are here. And so I essentially, how it affected our family was that two years later when my kids are two, um, my mom made the statement as we were driving around town over on Christmas Eve, she made the statement that my brother was coming to town with a girlfriend and they would be spending the night. And she said, you know, he can sleep in my room and I'll sleep on the couch. And I was caught off guard and I made the statement that I didn't realize that he was coming and I didn't realize uh, that he was bringing someone. And and she responded um, sharing that she she had advised him not to, but that it didn't go well. and that mm. um, And that he had gone into a rage at the time and that was very clear to me at, the, at that point that I my responsibility primarily is to my children and to my family, mm-hmm. and I was not going to allow for rage. I, was, I wasn't gonna allow for the chaos. I wasn't gonna allow for uh, the consequences ultimately of addiction, active addiction within my home, having two small children. so mm-hmm. that was that was the, that was essentially a reorientation of our family for the next decade. so I um, I said, I can't allow for that. My responsibility is to the safety of my children. And it didn't go well because, again, people respond to addiction differently. And my mom was in a state of denial for a long time. Yeah. Um, And she she would tell you this herself. um, She believed that she was doing the best for Chris and that she was there for him. In fact, she was the only one in her view that was there for him mm-hmm. all of those years. And so it she took that, interpreted that as a rejection of Chris as well as a rejection of her. And so addiction is ravaging and mm-hmm. that if we aren't willing to face it, then it just comes out sideways and it uh, really... Um, wasn't until, honestly, counseling in the last two years, we were able to go back to that event and to process it with a clear lens of addiction, mm-hmm. calling it what it is, naming it what it is. And so for 10 years, almost, my brother was—and um, I were estranged based on that event and based on what he understood that event to, to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that's how it affected our family for a long time. My mom and I couldn't really speak about my brother— um, because of uh, her belief that I didn't want good for him, that I didn't care for him, and, um, and my belief, honestly, that she didn't care for me and that she didn't want good for me. Mm-hmm. There are so many layers. It's so complicated, <laughs> the way that it works. But uh, because of the healing that has taken place and um, the counseling that my mom and I actually have done together, we, mm-hmm. we've been able to talk really openly about the way that addiction has affected our family, and in particular, my relationship with her.
0: That's so good. I mean, that's, oh man, that's like, it's rough, but it's so good in hindsight to see how, um, yeah, how much you've gone through and how important it is um, to, to get that help. Um, so sure.
1: can,
0: uh, what do you think in all of this was the hardest part of yeah. walking through addiction with your brother and your, your family and everything?
1: I think certainly the kind of events I just told you about Uh the, I think the estrangement, the separation, the broken relationships for almost a decade of just, um, of ultimately, uh, I, I think was, was the most painful, that loss of relationship. I lost in so many ways. I lost a brother and I lost, uh, a mom in the process. Um, so I think, I think that was the hardest, hardest part, certainly. Um, being out of a relationship, being misunderstood, um, being misrepresented because of because of boundaries, Right. Um, I think was was definitely the, the hardest part. Mm. That separation from my family, oh. feeling in in many ways orphaned uh, during that time, recognizing also that he felt the exact same way. So mm. he was obviously in a lot of pain.
0: Well, that had to um, have been really hard considering like your past and. Even before all of this happened, you struggled mm-hmm. with, you know, identity and where do I belong and who 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 do I whom I valued by, and then to right. go through
1: that. I have a vivid, vivid memory. Actually, it just came to me that during this time, some of some of these years, my dad and I were also out of relationship for for different reasons, and mm-hmm. um, so there were there were several years there that I was not in contact with either one of my parents, and my kids were little. Mm-hmm. Berkeley was three at the time, and I was washing dishes, and out of nowhere, she said. Do you do you have a mom? Do you have a dad? She, they were so little, wow. and I said, yes, I said I I do, and she said, um, do they love you? And it was it was it was it was the spirit of God through mm-hmm. the mouth of a babe. Mm-hmm. She said, do they love you? And I was washing dishes, and I froze, and um, I said, I, I believe they do. I think they do. I said, sometimes Berkeley. Um, parents are hurting, and they don't quite know how to show love. And so mm. they do, but they just sometimes don't know how to show it. And she said, Mommy, come here. And so I turned off the water. She was sitting at the kitchen table. She said, Mommy, come here. <laughs> and I went over to her. She said, Get down. Get down on your knees. And I got down on my knees, and she took my hands, my face, in her hands. And she she looked at me, and she said, Mommy, we love you. Oh she said, gosh. We love you. We love you more than Coke, and we love you more than candy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh and I just started weeping I just right there on my kitchen floor just wept and it was as if I was looking into the face of God saying I see you I know your pain I, I still choose you I will never stop choosing you mm. I have given you a family so. you've got me crying girl that's so sweet mm-hmm. oh my gosh how those cool were the, those were the hardest years for sure yeah
0: Um. so You know, we're hearing about times when He's in there and then after the fact. So can you describe some of the
1: transformation? Sure, definitely. Um, I, you know, during this time, honestly, I had stopped asking God for impossible things. I... Had prayed obviously for years since since first um, coming to know and, and love Jesus as a high schooler. Even, I'd I'd really prayed and asked God uh, for rescue of my family. And so, I had by this time um, during this estrangement with my family, I honestly just stopped asking God for impossible things. I stopped believing. I stopped. In some ways, I say whispering at the sky, can these bones live, (laughs) as Ezekiel did. And I just stopped praying and asking because it was the heartbreak of my life. Mm. And um, in January of 2017, I was at a women's conference where I was reading Luke 7 and the story of, of Jesus touching uh, essentially, the tomb. He, he he touched the coffin and raised the son. And and I, God asked, "What needs to be raised for you? What needs to be resurrected for you?" Mm-hmm. And 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 that experience, I just wept and I wept and I and I and I felt as if He was asking, like, "Are you willing to? Are you willing to to come alive again? Are you willing for these prayers to come alive again? Are you willing to, to believe that I can do the impossible, dead thing, and bring it to life?" And so that January I started praying again and I journaled about it and just said, I, I, I'm i willing, like I believe again. And he, he restored me to hope that day. And I, that January, January 2017, started praying again in faith and believing again in rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as if I didn't believe God had the power to rescue, but that he cared to. Mm-hmm. I just stopped trusting his intentions. I stopped trusting that his heart was for me, that his heart was for my family after over two decades of asking for there to be healing. And and so, um, but in any case, he restored me to hope that day. And so in January, I started praying. And by that spring, I received, um, within six months, I received an email the first contact from my brother. And he actually sent it to my husband, Ryan. And Ryan came home from the middle of the day at work. And I, I knew by his face that there was something. There was either somebody had either died or there was something <laughs> wow. uh, really uh, tr- transformative about, about to happen or that was taking place. And so he came home and just the look on his face and he said, I got an email from your brother and the email was haunting. It was beautiful and it was haunting and it was tragic and it, essentially named my pain even it said for the first time um I, i see you were hurting too we were both hurting and um this is what we lived this was your experience also i was hurting but so were you and i never saw that before now i never saw your pain i never saw that you had the same childhood you had the same Experience within our family, and mm-hmm. um, because there was lots of brokenness and trauma, obviously in our in our story, which ultimately influenced the way that we managed our pain. Um, but he named it, yeah. and it was the only other person in my life. Other people had done this my entire life. Counselors and friends and people within my community had named and given space and room for my pain, but this was the person that shared it with me mm. as a child, and he named it. And yeah. in that same email, he had shared that he had been um, that he had been uh, addicted to heroin, mm. and uh, that it was the dragon ultimately that he was chasing, and I was devastated for him and all of the pain ultimately that uh, he was carrying that uh, he bore in order to even find himself in that deep with, with his addiction so I uh-huh. yeah it was the first point of contact I ran to the back porch and was dry heaving and vomiting just because oh it was just yeah. from this innermost place of just just being moved and broken and haunted by all of it. Mm-hmm. Him acknowledging the pain, him sharing and bearing his own pain with me for the first time after almost a decade of not having any relationships. So we emailed back and forth. Um, and uh, honestly, that email came from a place of active addiction. So he feels really guilty from some of, for some of the things that he shared were, uh, within that email. But mm-hmm. I told him it was such a gift of grace to me for him to even send it while he was in active addiction because of what I feel like it set free yeah. in my own life for him to, to to have that type of empathy on me mm. as as a sister that shared his pain growing up. And so he was in active addiction at the time. And a few days later, it was uh, my, brother, my uh, husband and I, Ryan, it was our 15th anniversary this morning and it was early in the morning and I received a, a text message from him and it was all caps and it just said, help, help, help. Mm. And I called him, and he was in a state of psychosis, and um, wow. it was scary. Um, and he needed help desperately. He needed to be um, he needed to be in treatment, and. Mm. Uh, essentially, for psychosis. And so Ryan, without hesitation, he got in the car and he drove straight there. He met a friend of mine who runs the largest recovery high school in the country out of Houston. Mm. Um, and she was one of my dearest friends, uh, and even in fifth grade. And so we had not been in touch. and hadn't seen each other in decades, but um, she, uh, along with Ryan, ran straight into the darkness. Uh, they together went to be with, with, with my brother, and looked to get him checked into uh, at and uh, into the psychiatric facility there. And the day didn't go, didn't go well. Um, in fact, it, it, it ended with my brother standing in the middle of oncoming traffic and there were death threats. And it was a really Gosh. scary situation for sure all around for all of them. But um, I wasn't without hope that day. Ryan called me on his way back and he was weeping. And he said, I'm just so sad. I'm so sad for Chris. I'm so sad for you. I'm so sad for all the suffering that you all have experienced. And he he had heard of it. He had obviously been told stories from long ago, but he had actually, he had been abiding with him. He was walking with him shoulder to shoulder um, mm-hmm. in that day and in that suffering and in that pain. And um, he was, I say, living out Ephesians 5 Uh, loving me as Christ loved the church, laying himself down ultimately for the sake of loving my brother that day. And so um, it was devastating and yet not despairing. I was devastated, but not despairing. And I just knew that God can move. Like I believe him. I trust him to move within the walls of a psychiatric hospital. I trust him to move. Should my brother be arrested and imprisoned? I trust him to move and to meet Chris. And I trust that he is actively moving and working. And and I had seen evidence of that even just from him reaching out. And so four months later, four months went by. um, Since that day at the psych facility, four months went by and I got a call from a treatment facility. It was a message, I'll never forget it, um, from Julie, who's now become a dear friend. She was uh, the counselor at a facility, a treatment facility, and she left a message that said, I'm calling to see whether or not you would be willing to come and meet your family for family counseling. Your brother's been in treatment for a few months, and um, he would like to meet with you if you're willing. And so uh, kind of the rest is history. Mhm from that point on. So that was um that was the last week of October of 2017 and within a week within a week I was in Houston seeing my brother for the first time in almost a decade. Man.
0: That's I mean it's like your your brother who was dead is alive. That kind, I mean yeah. like that's such a crazy like thought that you know he was he was essentially dead to you.
1: you he know? was and more yeah. alive than I've ever seen him. Honestly, it yeah. was So beautiful, I will never forget. Um, Of course, I was sick to my stomach. And quite honestly, I just met with him the first time because of because of the estrangement and all the pain um, within our family context, when my, my when Julie left the message that said, are you willing to meet with your whole family? My first thought was, oh, hell to the no. <laughs> I uh, was not willing, I did not feel safe to be in the same room with uh, my, both my brother and my mom because mm. of our, uh, our history with one another. But I did uh, meet with my brother at first, and ironically, and as God would have it and laugh at it, Four months later, I was meeting in the room with with both of them at the same time, and we were doing a deep, deep work, and God was restoring a deep, deep uh, wound between all three of us. But that first time that I did see my brother, he um, opened the door, and it was truly as if he had been put back together into a new person. He opened the door wide, and -hmm. his embrace, I say, was even wider, and we just held one another, hugged one another, um, as if we hadn't lost a decade between us. Mm -hmm. So it was... That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's
0: so cool, and mm-hmm. I think it's it's really amazing that um, you know addiction is such a hard thing because um, it does it feels very intentional. It feels like you made a decision to mm-hmm. pick up this thing that you knew was destructive for you. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not always the case, but um, that's how it kind of feels like you can't. You're choosing. They're choosing this thing over right. people, but um, I think it's really inspiring just how compassionate um you and ryan have you stayed to him in that Mm -hmm. in that difficult walk and um i think that's that's really like that's challenging because Mm -hmm. i'm not sure i would be ready to walk back after that and so i mean that praise praise god that you were because that that's why the story is a beautiful one um Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, he he, he readied my heart for it, mm. for cer- for certain. I did not always respond with compassion. And Chris would tell you that. I mean, there was plenty of judgment for plenty of years and so much fear around his addiction. And our tendency, of course, is to move away from those things that we, we're afraid of and that mm. we don't understand. And um, so God ultimately readied my heart and my mind to move towards Chris and to move towards healing. Um, and there's so much shame around addiction, and and here's the deal: we all we all put our pain somewhere. Every single one of us is tempted to numb, to numb out. Mm-hmm. We all do, we all numb out um, because it's scary. It's a, it's incredibly painful for us to allow ourselves to feel our feelings and to let ourselves grieve deeply to mm. acknowledge our losses. Um, but it's the only way to healing. And so we we all numb out. Some people addicts put their put their pain. Towards using, and for many of us, it's it's digital heroin. It's how we crack out on our cell phones or on social media or on Netflix or food or even good Mm -hmm. things like exercise and work become workaholism. So, yeah, um, the only way forward for any of us is to feel our grief and to acknowledge our losses, and that's a really scary and painful thing to do. And so, of course, we want to turn elsewhere. And for the addict, uh, they turn towards using, towards active addiction. Mm -hmm. So um, I, on the other hand, just happened and I'm out to noise and activity, people, productivity. It's still a mechanism for avoiding pain. And it was through counseling, ultimately, when I was 19 years old, um, beginning to learn that that grief is the only path. And I remember, like, wait, what? Wait, you're saying that I need more pain to heal, that I need to welcome pain in order to heal? Yeah. Isn't there (laughs) any other way towards healing than to grieve? But yeah. there really isn't. There, there really isn't. And so we have to, uh, really, we have to feel all of it. We have to feel all of it because to, to feel anything, to experience joy, means we have to allow for sadness also and suffering also. Yeah,
0: that had to be mm-hmm. hard. I, I'm just for a little tangent, but
1: I know, mm-hmm. I know
0: you're at Enneagram, Enneagram Seven. Yeah. So that's got to be sure. really, really tough um, for somebody whose personality tends toward. Looking on the bright side, reframing things, and mm-hmm. um only wanting you know positive things around you, like mm-hmm. to deal with that hard space. Is, you know, <laughs> that took I'm sure that took a whole lot of mm-hmm. God softening your heart to
1: that. Oh, certainly. I think it's it's the irony of ironies that I'm an Enneagram seven and yes. the life that I had. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks so much to Andrea for being willing to share. And a huge thank you again to Chris for allowing us this peek into his journey. Guys, wasn't God glorified in a huge way through their story? When we are willing to share the hard places that we've walked through, God gets even more glorified. And we realize how much we have in common with those around us. I pray that we would all do the same in our own lives. Please make sure that you listen to the next episode for the rest of our conversation. For now, friends, always remember to stay faithful.